0: God, we acknowledge your presence here with us this morning. And Father, we want to to praise you with all that we are. Lord, right now we submit ourselves to your word and want you to speak to us, God. We pray you would meet us here, Father. That you would stir our hearts and may we then in turn, Lord, live lives of praise to you. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you ever plan on going to visit Brooklyn, New York, I'll give you this word of advice. Don't stay at the quality Inn. On Tripadvisor, advisor, uh, sixty-one percent of people don't recommend that hotel. One reviewer called it the most awful, godforsaken place on earth. She writes in her review: "Me and my mom went on a shopping trip in this January and got a quote good deal with a well-known travel agent for this hotel. We told the taxi driver at the airport where we were going and said it was a, and he said it wasn't a good place for tourists." As we'd already booked, we carried on. The taxi driver then said that he would find us another hotel and come back in the morning free of charge to get us away from the hotel. The area was like the ghetto. I was very, it was very scary, and I still can't believe a travel company would send us there or anyone else. We got to the, into the reception area where a customer was telling the receptionist that she wanted her money back. We checked in. Our room smelled so bad of cigarettes and air freshener, the toilet wouldn't flush, and we sat and cried. We went to check out after 15 minutes, where the receptionist reassured us we were safe, as they always have police outside. I spoke to a woman just checking in who also looked scared. She said she was going to stay one night instead of four, and she asked me to pray for her. Please don't think I'm exaggerating. And this hotel and the area are the worst I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) She calls it the most awful, God-forsaken place on earth. When we think of a place being God-forsaken, we think it's so horrible that not even the omnipresent God would want to be there. It's a place that should be condemned, has no worth. Now, when we think of God-forsaken places, that's one thing. But what happens when an individual feels like a God-forsaken person? You know, I went on an online blog support group, and a woman wrote this. She said, I am very, very, very angry with God. I feel He has forsaken me, and has left me alone to fight evilness, of which I am not well-equipped. Does he even hear my prayers? Does he know of my anguish? Does he love me? Why would he leave me at their their mercy to hurt me and allow me no reprieve? I am being falsely accused. Why hasn't he vindicated me? Why has he forsaken me? That's the sound of someone who is deeply hurt. And perhaps you might be in that place today or were at that place at some point in life where you really felt like you were a God-forsaken person, that God has rejected you. To feel God-forsaken is an awful thing. But to believe it is despair. Another person writes, Will the Lord's burn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, shut up his compassion? That's the anguish of a heart. But that quote does not come from an online support group. That's Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Feeling God forsaken is not an uncommon human feeling. Sometimes we feel God forsaken because of sin in our lives, a secret we hold on to. Perhaps it's unanswered prayer that we've prayed about for years. Perhaps your own heart has become apathetic toward God and you feel God must no longer be present, He's rejected me. Or perhaps you've been hurt by others. But at the end of the day, you feel like God has turned His back. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 77 felt that way. And the Jews felt that way in Ezra, before Ezra 1. Just think, the Jews were the people of God. They were his chosen people. God had given a promise to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, that they would be a great nation. And God fulfilled that promise. And the Jews were a great nation. Under King David, they saw a mighty king. They saw peace in the land. They had rest. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that a king will reign forever on that throne in the line of David, a descendant of David. But God's people rebelled. And in the year 722 BC, God sent the Assyrian Empire to come and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And they took them away into exile. And then in 586, the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians. And a king was always on the throne of David until that conquering. The final king was a man by the name of King Jehoiachin. And as the Jews are being led off into exile, they're now in a land they had never been in before. Away from Jerusalem, the city of God. They were away from a place to a place now where they didn't know the language. They were away from where the temple was, where God had dwelt in. No doubt as they stood in exile there in the nation of Babylon, many felt God forsaken. Even God's promises to David had apparently been cut off. That's why the Book of Ezra is such a beautiful book, because we can relate to those feelings of rejection and despair, and even with reference to God. And Ezra reminds us that God doesn't forsake His people, but He's always at work. Last week, Pastor Ralph showed us that God's hand was always moving. Sometimes it seemed very invisible; we never, they didn't see it. But God stirred the heart of King Cyrus. to tell the the Jews, go back to your homeland out of exile. Where did that come from? But God, God stirred up people to provide the resources for them to rebuild the temple. That was why they came back. And God stirred the hearts of certain Jews to return from exile to Jerusalem. Although they felt they were God forsaken, indeed, God was always at work look at Ezra chapter 2 it's our text for today Ezra Ezra chapter 2 and 3 I want us to look at how their fortunes got turned from feeling forsaken and in despair reversed to feelings of hope how did that come about and what does that mean for you if you find yourself there forsaken by God in your heart what does God want to tell you what does this passage mean for you Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'ana. These are leaders of these are key leaders in the nation of Israel who came back out of exile to Jerusalem. And I want us to look at the first two names there. Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Jeshua, or Yeshua. Chapter 3, verse 2, mentions these same men. You turn your page your Bible over. It says, Then arose Joshua the son of Jozadak and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. Drop down to verse 8 of chapter 3. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jozadak made a beginning. What's the deal with these two men? Well, Joshua, first of all, was of a priestly background. He was a man who could work in the temple and God raised him up as a leader of the priests to send him to Jerusalem so that when the temple would be rebuilt, he could help in the worship of God there and teach others. So God provided even one, a leader like Joshua. But even more fascinating is this man Zerubbabel. His name means seed of Babylon. That means he was born in Babylon. He had never been to Israel. He was born in exile as a captive. And here God raises him up. But we're told that he is the son of a man named Shealtiel. To us that means absolutely nothing. Why is it so important to mention Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel? It's significant because 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I want to write that down. 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. We're told that Shealtiel is the son of King Jehoiachin, which then makes Zerubbabel the grandson of King Jehoiachin, the last king in Judah. By God raising up Zerubbabel, it's as if he was saying, you thought my promises to David were cut off when you were conquered and the last king was on the throne. But even in this time of captivity, I had preserved a remnant, namely one Zerubbabel, who's in the line of David, who would carry on the promises I made to David in 2 Samuel 7. So when they saw Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, they were reminded that God was still at work and that God still had promises to David that a king would reign on his throne forever. Even more remarkable, in Matthew 1, Zerubbabel's name shows up as part of the genealogy of Jesus. See, Jesus was a descendant of Zerubbabel who was a descendant of King David. And that's why Jesus could be on David's throne and reign as a king and deliverer. So God was always at work here, even when they didn't see him. When they felt they were forsaken by God, this man Zerubbabel would pass on the promises that God gave to King David. What hope he gave them. God provided people to work the temple. It wasn't even built yet. But if you look there in verse 36 of chapter 2, God provided the priests, in verse 40. He provided the Levites, verse 41, the singers, 42, the sons of the gatekeepers, 43, the temple servants, and then 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. These are people who would work in the temple once it was built. Some would be stay at the gate, keeping watch of who entered. Some would keep in charge of administration. Some were singers. They were like the worship leaders. They sang songs as people came into the temple. So even before this temple was built, God provided people to work it so that the worship of Him would take place again in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful picture of God's care and how God stirred the hearts of these people. Now when we see a genealogy like this, take verse 43 for instance. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa the sons of Tabaoth. I was going to have Steve read this for the scripture reading, but I didn't want to do that to him. Again, we read this and we think, this, this doesn't really jive with me. I don't really care who the sons of Ziha were. But someone once told me, and it stuck with, it stuck with me, that genealogies then kind of function like photo albums do today. So, a, a Jewish person would come to verse 43 and read, the sons of Ziha," And that person might be reminded, "Zeha was my grandfather, and the sons of Ziha is my dad and my uncles. They came back. So I would read this with joy and excitement, looking at how God stirred the hearts of his family to come out of Babylon into Jerusalem. No doubt something that would be thrilling to them. Especially because of the circumstances here. Pastor Ralph mentioned this last week. They had been in Babylon for a long time. Many of them had established homes, planted vineyards. They had friends, neighbors. And to leave Babylon by this point would take an enormous step of faith. Jerusalem wasn't habitated. It was, it was left out of control. What did it mean to leave your comforts of Babylon to come to Jerusalem? And for them, it meant a huge step of faith. And Not even to mention that the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would take months, on roads with bandits and robbers and thieves. So when they read the name Ziha or Kiras or Hagabah, they would say, that's my grandfather. And take pride in how God stirred his heart to be courageous enough to lead Babylon, step out of faith and honor God to come back to Jerusalem. So look at the reversal here. From the forsaken feeling in exile to this rebuilding of hope. And now God was beginning to reoccupy the land. Look at verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360 beside their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337 and their seniors 200. God provided tens of thousands of people to return from exile to come back to Jerusalem. Their hearts were stirred. Hope was reunited. They went from feeling God forsaken to be reminded that even when they were in exile, God was at work. Even when they were in the spiritual valleys and dry places of their lives, when their prayers weren't being answered in captivity, when they were under the the rule of a pagan king, God was still in control with all the hurts they faced. And let that serve as a reminder to us. Although we might feel God forsaken and even at times believe it, Know it not to be true. Don't let your heart go there. Because when you cannot see the hand of God, He indeed is working. Raising up people like Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. And these Jews recognized it. They recognized that God was truly at work. And we see them respond in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, in at least five different ways. First, they responded in a unified way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They gathered as one man. This multitude of 42,000 people came together and they could be considered one because of their like-mindedness. They were there sent by God to build the temple and they knew it. They gathered in the seventh month which is our September slash October season? The seventh month in the Jewish calendar was very important. It was the Day of Atonement. Was in the seventh month. It was a day when their sins would be cleansed. In the seventh month was the Feast of Booths, where they celebrated their exile out of, their coming out of uh, Egypt, the Exodus. So it was a special day, and they gathered together in the seventh month as one person, unified, to do what God called them to do. So first, they were unified in their response. Secondly, they were expectant. Look at verse 2. Then arose Joshua the son of Josadak and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. They built an altar. Exodus 29, we have God giving instructions to Moses telling the people of Israel how they were supposed to build an altar. And you get the sense that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other people are thinking, you know, our forefathers really messed up and we ended up in exile. This time we're going to do it right and we're going to do it just as Moses told us to do it. The beautiful thing about Exodus 29 when God gives instructions on how to build it, this is what God says in 29 verse 44. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests." But then listen to this. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, when the people would establish the altar, God said, I'll be present with you. I will manifest myself there among you in a mighty way. I will be your God. So I think when these leaders made this altar, before they did anything else, they didn't even lay a foundation yet. They built an altar. I think they were saying, they were saying a prayer something like this, Lord, your word tells us that when we build an altar, that you will come and say that you are our God. And God, we invite you now to be among us as our God as we return back out of exile. I think this altar was an expression of expectancy that God would visit them like He said He would. There's a beautiful tension there. Because on the one hand, God's omnipresent. He is here. But on the other hand, He says, I will be there with them. And it came up even last week in, in one of the songs we sang, and I was so grateful that as we think about the songs we sing, we need to ask, what does this mean? And it was brought up that the song says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And the question then is, in what sense are we asking Jesus to come, or the Holy Spirit to come? And it's a good question. And I was grateful that it was raised. Because on the one hand, the Spirit of God indwells us as children of God. So why do we say, come? He's already here. But on the other hand, Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, implying that we can oftentimes be not filled. So yes, He indwells, but yes, we ask Him and we seek His filling. Yes, Jesus is present, But yes, Paul says, Maranatha, come Lord, because he will return. So I think in a sense we ask, we we acknowledge, yes, God, you are present. But on the other hand, say, God, visit us. And I think that's what Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and the leaders of Israel were doing here in the seventh month. So they were unified, they were expectant, and thirdly, they were courageous. Look at verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Perhaps they never thought about this. One fact. We've been in Babylon many, many, many years. People still lived in Israel. Maybe not Jews, but people came and tried to occupy that land. And now this group of 42,000 have returned to build a temple and there's people there. And these people didn't want them. These people intimidated them. They threatened them. And, and the writer here says, and we were afraid. They had fear. So what sense then were they courageous? And I think it's important for us to recognize that courage is not lacking fear. Courage is what you do in the midst of fear. And what did they do? They built an altar and worshipped God. Their fear drove them to worship. And that's why I believe that they were courageous. They could have backed down. They could have said, you know what? This is a two-way ticket. Let's go back to Babylon. But at this point, they didn't. They built the altar and they started offering sacrifices to God. They could have had one of those experiences where you ask, what did I get myself into? You know, you ever help somebody move and think, this is bigger than I thought it would be. We moved yesterday, Erica and I, and we had a ton of help and I was very grateful. I hope no one felt like they were thinking, what did we get ourselves into? But we've had those experiences where this is going to be a long time. Perhaps we've had a good idea and we're really gung-ho about it. We start working on it and then all of a sudden, we get these obstacles and we think, what did I get myself into? Or maybe some of you men could resonate with this one. You take something apart and you, you try to fix it or clean it. And you, you cleaned it and you're like, yeah. And then you see all the pieces and you think, what did I get myself into? How did I put this back together? And I think they might have had a what did I get myself into experience, but they remained faithful. Perhaps you've had that experience, and not so much in the silly things of life, but even in your walk and relationship with God. Perhaps God called you to step out in faith, to go somewhere, change your jobs, to to do something. And while you step out in faith courageously, all of a sudden it's tough. You think, God, what did I get myself into? And you start thinking, disobedience would have been much easier than going through what I went through right now. It's kind of like the Jews thought when they came out of Egypt. They were slaves. And when they were freed, they said, we want to go back because it's too hard in this wilderness. They second-guessed obedience. There's a common misunderstanding that if it's God's will, it's got to be safe, comfortable, and easy. But if anything, Ezra chapter 3 says that's not true. It was God's will that they were there, and yet they were intimidated. They were fearful. But nonetheless, they were courageous. So they were unified, they were expected, they were courageous, and then they were obedient. Look at verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. Verses 4 and 5, they're going back to what the law of Moses said, and they wanted to respond in obedience. But we see this perfect interplay between responding towards the obedience, what they were supposed to do, and also this freewill worship, because it says they offered freewill offerings. Those weren't requirements, Those were kind of things you do as an expression of your gratitude and worship. And they even did that. Because they wanted to be obedient above all. Fifthly, they responded with a sense of responsibility. Look at verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. They knew God had brought them there for a purpose. They were called to leave Babylon in faith, come back to the motherland of Jerusalem just to kind of put their feet up. They were called and stirred by God To build this temple. And they took that sense of responsibility and said, Let's begin to raise money. Let's collect and gather our materials. And verses 8 and 9, Let's have have people supervise the project. They were committed to it. They were committed to what God called them to do in the face of opposition. Because they were united. They were expecting that God would visit them. They were courageous, obedient, obedient. And that took them to their sense of responsibility. They began to lay the foundation of the temple. So what's the fruit of their response? Look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Just follow with this. These are a group of people who felt forsaken by God while in captivity. God reverses their mindset and shows them that God was always at work. He instills hope in them. He stirs their hearts and sends them back. And then they respond with obedience and with gratitude. They begin to lay the foundation and then they rejoice. God was doing something. But the laying of this foundation was indeed bittersweet. Like chocolate, it was sweet in on the one hand because, on the one hand, because now the temple was going to be built, so they praised God. In verse eleven, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. It's like they had a call and response kind of worship service there because the foundation was set; they can now begin to build this temple. And this is what they sing: For He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That's the very thing many questioned in exile. Had God's steadfast love continued? And here they are in Jerusalem saying, God is good. His love endures forever. The word steadfast love is a word hesed in Hebrew, which is God's covenant-keeping love. It's God's commitment to His people. And they said, God has kept His covenant and it endures forever. You can feel the elation that they had on their lips. This is a quote of Psalm 100 where the psalmist just shouts praises to God. God had not forsaken them. He is good. His steadfast love endured forever. Actually, let me continue on. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They shouted out. But I mentioned it was a bitter sweet. That's the sweet. What was so bitter about this? Why were the people, what made this a bitter experience? Well, look at verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. They began to weep. They were sad. What was it that led the younger generation who had never seen the temple, the old one, shout for joy when they saw the foundation laid? And then what was it that made the older people Sorrowful when they saw the foundation laid. The only thing we're told is that these were older people who had seen the previous house. I think the one thing that separates the two is one word memories. The older people had a memory of the old temple, they remembered it. Then they remembered all that transpired. God had to send a wicked nation to judge them because of their sin. That brought them to sorrow. They probably were brought to sorrow because they remembered how that beautiful temple that Solomon had built went crashing down in flames at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it brought them to tears. They remembered how big and lavish that temple was. And this temple, they saw the foundation, and it wasn't as big. And they were sad. They were sad. I mentioned that when we have rocks when you walked in, they have the word tears on them. And this is an interesting spot because what we have is a passage filled with great excitement and joy. Yet it turns here to sorrow because they remembered their sin and how that led them to this place of captivity. And the tears of joy and the tears of sorrow were so closely intertwined. Look at verse 13. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. I began this message talking about how oftentimes we come to places where we feel forsaken by God. And here we're reminded that they felt that way because of their own Sinfulness, The sins of their forefathers. In some cases, it wasn't even their actions. Some of them were children. But it was their fathers who sinned. And now they felt the repercussions of that. And the question is, did God forsake them? And clearly the answer is no. Because Ezra chapter 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3 remind us that God's hand is at work even in the midst of apparent silence. Their sin brought them to that place of captivity. It brought them to that place of sorrow. But God's mercy endured and brought them to a place of hope. I mentioned Psalm 77 at the beginning of this message. A psalm that kind of strikes us. It says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? What I didn't do was continue on reading. Because this is what the psalmist says. When he thinks in these ways, he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And then he remembers the Exodus. He says, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah, which is pause. Then he says, when the waters saw you, O oh God, referring to the parting the seas, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, and skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What a reversal in that psalm. He asks, has his steadfast love forever ceased? And he says, at that point, I'm going to remember God's works of old. And although they didn't see his footprints in that wilderness, they didn't see God's footprints in the Red Sea, God led them like a shepherd through the waters. And this psalmist, in a time of great despair, says, God, when I don't see you at work, when I don't hear you, when prayers aren't answered, I'm going to remember this, that you've been at work when times we didn't see. And I'm going to trust you for that now. So perhaps it's sin in your life that has brought you to a place where you feel God has rejected you. Perhaps it's unanswered prayer. Perhaps you feel you can't be forgiven. Perhaps you feel God has forsaken you. And when you feel that despair, remember this. Remember Ezra. Remember how God's invisible hand was at work, stirring hearts, giving hope through a man like Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Remember the response of the people to know that God was at work even when they couldn't see it. And remember this, that although the people cried tears of sorrow, God was making things new. And He has done that for us. When you're at your lowest point, remember that God is at work, even if you can't see Him at work. That you as a child of God, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are His. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never leave you or forsake you. When it sounds like your prayers are falling on deaf ears, remember God's works of old. He does not forsake His people. He's doing a work. Remember their song. For He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and toward all of His children. Dear people of Good News Bible Church, let us cling fast to that hope that our God is here. He is here. Let us come alongside a brother or sister who we know is in a rut and offer them encouragement, reminding them that God is mighty to save and His hand will not falter. And if today you don't know what it means to be forgiven by God. Let me just tell you this. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, would become a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ who gives us hope. Jesus bore our sin on a cross. He was nailed to a cross to give hope, to forgive us of our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God so that we then, could be the righteousness of God. We can be children of God. And then he was raised to life three days later. And we too can have that hope of resurrection. And Jesus told, told his disciples when he ascended into heaven. What did he tell them? He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And that promise could be yours if you would surrender your life to him today. I want to ask our prayer counselors to come forward. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you don't know His presence in your life and what it means to be a child of God, would you come and pray with one of them? Or perhaps you're in a rut spiritually and you need to be reminded, you need someone to come alongside and put an arm around you and pray with you and remind you that you are not forsaken by your God. His steadfast love endures forever toward you. Come and be prayed for. Or if there's any burden or any praise you want to declare, don't be shy. But come forth and do that. We're going to ask our band to come forward. And we're going to celebrate our mighty God, whose hand is mighty to save, and who is powerful to His children. Would you bow with me in prayer as we commit this final song to the Lord? Father in heaven, we're reminded by the bittersweet tears that our sin has consequences and that there is great hurt at that place. But we're reminded God, as Hebrews tells us, God disciplines His children like a loving Father. He doesn't forsake us. He restores us and reconciles us to Himself. And Lord, we just praise You for that, that we are Yours in Jesus Christ. So we pray that that hope would reign true in our lives And that we would encourage one another and be reminded that Jesus is with us to the end of the day. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.